0: Totus, tuus. Totus, tuus. I just came up with a chant for Totus to us. You're listening to Coffee Talk with Father Brad.
1: Welcome to lecture on chapter nine about John Paul II. So I have Father Brad here joining me to talk about at least one of my favorite saints.
0: Um, So you know what the theme song of this, this class is?
1: I'm afraid to ask.
0: I like it when you call him Big Papa, throw your hands in the air if he's the Pope player. Oh my gosh.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, um let's talk about John Paul. Before we get into his life, um I want to mention, I guess the first time I was really aware of who John Paul was uh was whenever he died. Um so that was 2005. I was 15 mm-hmm. and I was on a cruise ship off the west coast of Mexico. <laughs> and it was spring break for us and he passed away I was a freshman in high school, um, and I, you know, I had, like, heard his name. I, like, kind of knew who the pope was, but I, like, didn't know anything at all about him. But I remember it was a sea day, so we weren't, like, in a port or anything. We were just on the ship. And I just sat in the stateroom all day and watched the news footage and was just completely captivated by this man Mm. that I, you know, previously had known, like, nothing at all about.
0: Um, Do you, could you have said who the Pope was if someone asked you like who's the Pope before that could yeah, you have said John Paul well,
1: I would have been able to say John Paul only because of the Mass right so when you go to Mass oh, and yeah. in the in the Eucharistic prayer right they pray for the Pope by name and so John Paul our Pope and Oscar our Bishop was what it was in Mobile at the time and so Oscar, I could have yeah nice Oscar Lipscomb, that was our Archbishop so anyways I, uh, I could have told you that probably because of that I may have heard about him in religion class or something growing up but like didn't really know didn't really have a lot of info um but just watching the news and it was just regular secular news channels you know um like CNN or whatever and we're watching it on on the ship and it was like my parents were like why don't you come up and like swim in the pool and like be fun and I'm like no I want to watch this and I didn't know why like I didn't really have any sort of reference but it was like I knew it was something significant you know even though I didn't really know him at the time
0: Mm.
1: so ever since then um, I don't know he's just kind of popped up in my life I have this necklace which I didn't even get myself that has him on it Um, but it says be not afraid and my friend gave it to me Uh, and it was just I don't know Like he's just always kind of come up as somebody that is significant in my life. Um, Just cool connections and things like that. So I don't know. Uh, Did you have any recollection of him when you were growing up?
0: I was right around his death. Yeah. I mean, I was a little older than you. I was a junior in high school Mm -hmm. and we had Dawson youth conference and father Stan Fortuna. Do you remember him? Yeah. (laughs) He's a rapping priest speaking of. um, And he just talked at the Dawson Youth Conference. It was, Dawson Youth Conference, it was during Lent, and he died like in Easter, right? It was like April something, mm-hmm. 2005, right? So, mm-hmm. so it was like right, but he was dying actively. So it was kind of this thing, and that's the first time I remember it was like him dying actively, and like I was just started going to youth group. So I was at uh, Dawson Youth Conference, and he talked about, how he's teaching us how to live by how he's dying, right? Mm. So he's, he's being faithful. He's, you know, offering up his sufferings and, and Father Stan's whole thing at that point was everybody's got to suffer. He had that rap song. (laughs) Oh yeah. Everybody's got to (laughs) suffer. That's funny.
1: Yeah, no, that's. That's for sure. I mean, that was the last several years of John Paul's life, yeah, right? Parkinson's. And, right, Parkinson's disease. Um, he had a whole lot of other just, like, health issues. He was uh, – how old was he when he died? I guess he was in his 80s, so he was pretty old. Um, and just his body was just breaking down, you know, like uh, what happens in old age. But um, our textbook talked about this particular story, which I hadn't heard before, where uh, as he was dying, he was in the papal – apartments in Vatican City. And they're right above the square. So you can walk into St. Peter's Square and you can see the window of the papal apartments. And apparently there were all these young people that were there that were praying for him just outside his window every day as he was dying. And apparently he, um, he sent a message to them from his deathbed and said something about, uh, I've I've searched for you and now you've come to me because his whole papacy, um, he always had this particular ability to reach out to the youth um, of the world. And I think that that is uh, something that started whenever he was a priest in Poland and he was a university chaplain and he was going on all these, you know, kayaking and skiing trips and out in the mountains and speaking to young people. And the movie Carol that we watched um, shows that a bit.
0: So, yeah. I, I, another moment was the part of Fishers of Men when I was discerning, and this is after. This is right around that same time. I mean, he's mm-hmm. past. He's dying. Like I just had a conversion at, at Steubenville Conference that that summer before my junior year, so two thousand four. Mm-hmm. And then, and I was watching Fishers of Men one time. They're showing it at like a youth conference, and it was a discernment video. And it showed, like, the priesthood. But then it had this section on John Paul II. And there was these, like, video, like shots of the crowd, like, going crazy. And then this mm-hmm. one shot of this girl just weeping.
1: Yeah.
0: Whenever John Paul, like, she saw John Paul come by. And I would just remember being like, that's <laughs> awesome. He makes girls weep. I mean, like, in a good <laughs> way. <laughs> he didn't, yeah. like, make fun of her. And
1: Yeah, no, it just, it was, it, he had this kind of, like, magnetic energy star. you know yeah he really was he was a rock star well there's a
0: whole um, there's actually an snl skit about about this there? uh when, yeah yeah it's um with um who's the guy who plays the banjo um steve
1: martin
0: steve martin steve martin yeah. plays the pope oh, so how he's funny. the pope because he has like bl- kind of like grayish yeah, yeah. whatever and and like the the whole joke is it's like outside of a music venue so there's like mm-hmm. a bouncer who's like not only allowing some people in and like, there's like nuns that are like kind of elbowing their way in, and they're like, "Come on, <laughs> let us in!" And then finally, the and finally, Steve Martin comes out, and he's like, "And he's like, I'm the Pope," <laughs> except, except it's like, you know, I was about to
1: say, I know that was an Italian accent, but. Yeah.
0: But it was just funny because it's actually kind of <laughs> accurate with with religious sisters. They, right. they're, pretty, they're, they're pretty they're pretty
1: vicious when it comes to the Pope. <laughs>
0: they're hardcore. Like they will they they will elbow a priest in the jugular. Oh my goodness. It close.
1: It's probably true. It's probably true. Um, just a couple stats about his funeral. When he died, one third of Earth watched. Isn't that crazy? like the the ratings on the news channels um one-third of earth's population so there were two billion people over two billion people that were watching oh look pastor's calling <laughs> you better answer uh, it
0: <laughs> hello i am I'm, I'm recording um in the the hall in, in the priest cave what's up okay okay i'll call you after he just nothing's called to say, I'm doing a, I'm doing a great job. <laughs> I'm sure that's what he's saying. <laughs> he's really appreciative of my priesthood, my brotherly help and my mm-hmm. talent.
1: Mm. I'm sure. I'm glad nothing's on fire. Uh, all
0: <laughs> right. be, he's like, Hey, currently the hall's on fire. So are you in there? <laughs> Yes, I am.
1: Um, So at his funeral, there were two million people that came to Rome just to witness his funeral. And during uh, that time, people started chanting just like spontaneously in the crowd, "Um, Magnus, 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 which means great, 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 right? So um, people knew like immediately when he died that he should be considered one of the greats, right? And there's only, what, three popes before him in history that are considered great and people typically say great after their name whenever they say them. So yeah. that's a pretty big Gregory deal. They the were,
0: great. Leo the, the, great, the Great.
1: And I think there was Nicholas the Great as well. Um, I hadn't heard of that one, but the book mentioned him. So I don't know. But anyway.
0: Um, well and isn't that the, the chant Santo Sabino? It like means like a saint now. Like make him a saint now.
1: Oh maybe. That was probably that too. But people were saying just like great, great, great as well. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, um, he had a 27-year papacy, which was the third longest in history after St. Peter himself at 35 years and Pius the IX, P.O. no, right? Wait, real quick, real
0: before. quick. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Santo Subito. It means uh, famous demand. Santo Subito means oh, crap. I'm behind a paywall on the <laughs> Washington Journal. Okay, never mind. Just, just keep going.
1: <laughs> um, it
0: means like make him a saint now. Okay,
1: <laughs> that's what you said initially. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Pius the Ninth, Pio Nono, who was pope for thirty-one years. So, twenty-seven years. He comes in third, third longest papacy in history. So, it's pretty significant. Um, when he was elected, he was only fifty-eight years old, which is kind of crazy to think about because typically popes are much older than that whenever they're elected. Um, he was a bishop at 38. Can you imagine?
0: I mean, That's... that grace, grace. Yeah. That is scary. I'm 32.
1: Yeah. You're not a pastor yet, so I don't think they're about to make you a bishop at 38.
0: <laughs> I know. I'm like, I got so much to do. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Anyway, he was the first Polish Pope ever, the only Polish Pope ever so far, and the first non-Italian since the 1500s. So it was really significant um, that he was elected when he was. And he was the, I thought the movie did a pretty good job of kind of showing that he was a compromise candidate. There were two Italian guys that they were kind of fighting between and nobody could decide. You have to Mm -hmm. have a certain margin of victory. It can't just be a simple majority. It has to be like you know a certain number. I don't know exactly what it is, but they couldn't decide between these two Italians, and so somebody suggested his name, um, and it was it was it was significant. It was weird. He was young. Um, he was you know pretty well known, but because of all of the writing that he had done and his presence at Vatican II, um, but he was sort of a unexpected, I think, candidate, and so it was pretty cool when he was elected. Um, all right, so let's talk about his early life. Um, He was born May 18th, 1920 in Wodowice, Poland, which is a small town. Um, His name was Karol Wojtyla. Uh, I don't know exactly how to pronounce it in Polish.
0: Wojtyla. 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 It has like
1: the little L with the little mark on it, but I don't know Polish, so I don't know how to say it. But he uh, he was called Lolek, though, by his friends and family. Um, His father was an officer in the Austrian army. Um, which is interesting. And his mom died when he was only eight years old of kidney failure. Um, and only a couple years later, when he was 12, his only uh, older sibling, his brother, who was a doctor, died of scarlet fever from the people that he was treating. Um, he had an older sister too, but she died in infancy even before he was born. So he never knew her. Um, when he was 18, his father and he moved to Krakow to let him study at the Jagiellonian University there. But that was only a year before uh, the Nazis invaded Poland, and the university was shut down. So they show that in the movie, um, the university being shut down and some of the professors even being shot. Um, just part of part of Hitler's whole uh, thing was to suppress the culture of the Poles, um, as well as various other, uh, ethnic and religious groups. Because if you can suppress somebody's culture, their literature, their philosophy, their poetry, their music, um, then you can break their spirit, right? Um, and that was, I think Hitler's whole thing was that he wanted to make sure that he could control these people. Um, and it was a different culture than what he saw as the best, which was his, Aryan culture or whatever. So, um, so that's why it was shut down. So basically he had to go into hard labor. Um, he worked in a rock quarry and then he worked in a chemical plant after that. Um, but underground the whole time he was reading, he was studying, he was praying. Um, he was a member of the Rhapsodic theater, which was that Mm -hmm. underground, a group of people who were acting and kind of trying to preserve the culture of Poland secretly. Um, And again, the purpose of that, like in the movie, they kind of talk about that and the tension between like, why would you in the middle of a war, um, instead of, you know, planting physical sabotage, you know, or, or, you know, going out and trying to kill Nazis or whatever, like, why would you just hold secret plays in the basement of someone's house? Like, what is the point of that, you know? So do you want to speak to that at all? What do you think?
0: Well, it's, it's, so there's a a quote by Dostoevsky um, in the Brothers Karamazov, correct? Mm -hmm. Um, In which one of those characters says, beauty will save the world, Mm -hmm. you know? And while the, the, the fallacy of the Nazi party getting its roots in, Um, like a nihilistic worldview, meaning like nothingness. So think of like Nietzsche's philosophy where he's like, uh, there is nothingness and um, there's no meaning kind of thing. If that is your worldview, then beauty will actually be the weapon against it. um, Because whenever you see something beautiful and true and good, you're more likely to recognize the dignity of the human person. Mm-hmm. So we cannot simply fight evil with violence. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, self-defense and all that is necessary. Mm-hmm. And he would recognize that as well. But, but the long run, like in the long term, mm-hmm. how you fight evil is with truth, goodness, and beauty, the transcendentals. Because that's what lifts up the human person, or else it's just a, a constant back and forth of like w- violence against violence, and go back and forth and just retribution. Mm-hmm. And that's where you get like uh, things like the mafia and <laughs> um, and you know Don Corleone having to go, <laughs> Michael Corleone having to go make a hit on the guy because he made a hit on him, and then yeah, it's just this, it's
1: a constant cycle, right? It's unbreakable. And why did
0: you, uh, you just break up my Godfather reference? <laughs>
1: You had enough, (laughs) you had enough time. Uh, anyway, so, so yeah. So during that period of time, um, he really focused himself on what he could do underground. And it was during that time that he discerned his vocation to the priesthood. He entered the seminary, um, in Krakow and was studying underground because the seminary was officially shut down, but unofficially still operating secretly. Um, and so during that time, he was also helping his, he had a lot of Jewish friends, um, in Poland and he was helping them to hide, um, just doing all sorts of things underground that was a sort of nonviolent opposition to the Nazis. Um, he also in that time discovered St. John of the Cross and they mentioned this in the movie. Um, there's a man who was actually a real character, Jan Tarnowski, was a real person in his life. And in the movie, they kind of make it like he, uh, meets him kind of randomly, but in, Real life, he actually knew him for a long time, Um, and he was a mentor to him in his local parish, I think, and they sort of helped form these underground prayer groups to just support people's faith during uh, such a hard time as the Nazi occupation, so... Uh, anyway, he introduced him to St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, who were the famous Carmelite reformers from the 1600s in Spain. Um, and St. John of the Cross particularly wrote that poem, The Dark Night of the Soul, um, which deals with, I guess, finding God in what seems like darkness, um, seems like God has disappeared and in, in, in a time that he has... Well, in a time that he's experiencing this hardship during the war, um, I think it it spoke to his situation very well um, and gave him sort of a way to find God in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that. What felt uh, sometimes like emptiness, um, but was actually really God drawing him closer to himself. So uh, after that, after the war, he was able to be ordained um, and he was sent to Rome. And he was sent there for studies uh, so that he could get his doctorate in philosophy and in theology. Um, And then back in Poland, he just worked as a parish priest, um, a university chaplain. Like I mentioned before, he taught ethics um, at the University of Lublin. And he mentored young people um, just in all of his, his time there as a chaplain. So during that time, like I said, he would go into the mountains. He would go on these trips. Um, Poland is under the communist regime now. Um, So they have a little bit more freedom to kind of move about, but are still um, kind of looked down upon by the communist government and kind of suppressed, Um, not as bad as with the Nazi regime, but still pretty, um, I guess they couldn't do everything out in the open. They couldn't speak their ideas freely.
0: So, so the, um, this, this type of ministry he was doing with the college students, it's called accompaniment is mm-hmm. how he spoke of it or he wrote about it. Um, and it might, it was very, nowadays you think of it, you're like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. Father Matthew or Father Reuben or Father Brad will come on a trip with us to the mountains and we'll go hiking and kayaking or they'll, they'll come to our retreats and like play dodgeball with us, you know, <laughs> and that wasn't the case then. Right. It just wasn't in general. It was like the priests were kind of up on a pedestal. If you became a priest, you um, maybe you suppressed all like your your what you love. Like maybe you like to play dodgeball as a kid, but then you (laughs) became a priest and you can't play dodgeball anymore. Um, Where he was like, no, I'm just going to keep kayaking. And so he'd he'd take these college students up there. And this is actually where he was receiving um, the I guess the datum or mm-hmm. the data of, mm-hmm. uh, of what later would become love and responsibility. And then the theology of the body was in these relationships you saw happening in college because kids eventually would fall in love and get married and he would right. marry him. He knows them, And mm-hmm. so he was, he was collecting all this experiential knowledge of marriage, dating, marriage, relationships, and all that man and woman and the theology, mm-hmm. um, but when he was talking about persecution, when he was in the mountains, he would ask them to call him Vujek, which means uncle. Mm-hmm. And so um, this was because, you know, communists might come up to him at some point and be like, what are y'all doing in the mountains? Are y'all being all free and stuff? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, like, like yeah, are you yeah, talking
1: about your religion that you're not supposed to be talking about? Yeah. So yeah. He, it was sort and of so a that, cover. So he was uncle. Right.
0: Which, which he's, he's like their uncle. So it was <laughs>
1: Yeah, so um, I think that that's it's really fascinating to see. And honestly, I the first time I really thought about this was when I first started teaching juniors several years ago. I think it's like about five years ago now. Started teaching juniors, and and back in that time, um, it was before we switched our textbooks over, and the curriculum was for the juniors to do church history uh, all year, and then the last quarter to do the theology of the body, which seemed a little bit Disjointed, you know, going from history to theology of the body, which is something that is more like moral theology, and it seemed very, like, kind of different. And so we eventually kind of reorganized the curriculum to where the sophomores take theology of the body and juniors just focus on church history. But in that first year, I noticed um, that we ended our church history unit talking about John Paul II, and then we jumped right into theology of the body, which actually kind of made sense, and it was. In doing that study in that order, that I recognized um, the relationship between his whole like political experience growing up um, and what it means to be in relationship with another human being. Um, and there's all these crossovers. So he he develops this idea. Um, that really he's jumping off of the church's tradition, right? Like he's, he's staying within that vein. Like he's, um, but he's developing this understanding of like the personalistic norm, right? That like every single human being um, is deserving of love, right? Like no matter who they are, no matter what they did, like if you are a human being, you're made in the image and likeness of God and what is due to you is love and nothing less, Right, and so it's interesting because when you talk about that in terms of theology of the body, you're thinking in terms of you know relationships, friendships, romantic relationships, uh, marriages, and yet he also is seeing this at play in every relationship across the board including relationships between nations between classes between um, you know various elements of society that like he sees in his Nazi occupied Poland as well as his communist occupied Poland um, what happens when people when every single human being is not treated with love but is treated as a thing to be used in order to accomplish a goal? right? Um, And so if, you know, in a personal romantic relationship, if I am um, using you in order to gain some sort of pleasure or gain some sort of status or something like that, then that is a problem, he says. Um, But that also applies to nations, right? Like if I use a certain class of people to establish the type of society that I think is going to be perfect or best, um, that's still a problem, right? That I'm using a person and that's never uh, the correct way to treat a human being. And so he saw that kind of in vivid uh, color, you know, in his life. And I think that both his experiences on the political level and his experiences with those students in the mountains, you know, finding their way in love and relationships and him counseling them and hearing their confessions and like understanding like what's going on in their hearts and all of that, um, that just led to this very holistic understanding of, um, yeah, just, ethics in general and love and respect for humankind. So I think what's really beautiful about him and his theology and his philosophy and his life is that uh it's so consistent. There's there's such a consistency in in him that like everything kind of fits together and makes sense and uh there's implications in every branch of of learning and knowledge and life and love and, you know, just Mm -hmm. everything. So anything to say about that?
0: (laughs) No, you nailed it. Okay.
1: Um, When he was 38 years old, he was made Bishop. Um, They show that in the movie, which I'm pretty sure was a true story. He was actually called out like off of a kayaking trip in order to come and receive the uh, appointment to Bishop. Um, But then pretty soon after that, he went to Vatican II. Vatican two was open in, uh, 1962. Mm -hmm. Right. And so he would have been, let's see, he would have been 38 and 58. So he was just over 40. Um, I guess he was 40, 42 and 62. Mm -hmm. Um, So still pretty young, but he was uh, one of the main writers of the Declaration on Religious Freedom along with John Courtney Murray, who's the Jesuit we talked about before. Um, Interesting perspectives, you know, somebody coming from a country where uh, there was not religious freedom under both uh, regimes of the Nazis and the communists, and somebody who experienced religious freedom his whole life in America, right? And so um, the two of them and their perspectives kind of cool to write that declaration. Um, Also, he contributed to one of the major four constitutions, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, Gaudium et Spes, which we mentioned Mm -hmm. before. We're talking about Vatican II. Um, And so he helped to write that as well. Uh, He was very famous for his uh, kind of optimistic attitude towards going out and engaging the modern world um, and kind of saying like, okay, what are the modern philosophies? What are people thinking? What are they searching for? What are their hearts really longing for? Um, And how can we present the gospel to them as the answer to those same questions? Um, And so you kind of see that in the Carol movie, whenever he meets with a communist guy specifically that uh, Julian Kordek or whatever, who's the communist leader in, Krakov, and he talks to him um, several times, and he basically tries to say, look, like, we want the same thing, right? Like we want a just society for people. We want people to be loved. We want true freedom. Um, but John Paul would say to him, look, like how you're trying to accomplish freedom is not going to make people free. It's only going to oppress them. But, uh, Jesus Christ has the true answer to what it means to be free, um, and love, uh, you know, not in a cheesy way, but a true, um, self-sacrificing love um is the only thing that will establish you know a society that is built on principles that will last and that will make true freedom so um so yeah so he's willing to engage like really try to get inside people's heads and understand what they're thinking and where they're coming from in the modern world like what are all these modern ideas all these problems that people are experiencing um and then how does the gospel uh respond to that so um Whenever he was 40 years old, so just before Vatican II, he did publish uh, Love and Responsibility, which was that first precursor to what would become the theology of the body, um, which was actually not a book that he wrote, but a series of uh, Wednesday papal audiences. Whenever he became Pope, he would go out into St. Peter's Square every Wednesday, as the Pope still does today, um, and give an address about some topic. And for five years, he gave addresses about the theology of the body. So just like life, love, and relationships. Um, at 43, he was... It was
0: basically, like, his, like, papal story, like, Instagram story. You just <laughs> add them all together, and, and it became a book. Basically. I mean, not really, but it was, like, little <laughs> snippets.
1: You know? Yeah, it was little little speeches, like, that were just, you know, one day at a time kind of thing um, for a few minutes. Like, they probably weren't longer than, what, like, half an hour, if that.
0: It was amazing that he can, like, construct, like, a very complex thing and over yeah day and
1: day. little tiny bits yeah mm-hmm.
0: you too can write a book if you just do it every day <laughs> for a little bit
1: right that is true
0: um well I, oh. let's talk can we talk about this real quick love yeah. and responsibility like yeah go just for the, it. like the idea that so remember personalism so mm-hmm. is personalistic norm like all of ethics all of and what, what we mean by all of ethics, all of morality, like what is morality? Kids, you're sitting there, you're watching the screen. You're like, Red, Miss Grace. Miss Krause. <laughs> oh, crap. Miss <laughs> Krause, what is, what is morality? What is ethics? Okay, I'll let you think. Okay, stop thinking. Um, answer me. Now go, I'll let you answer. Okay, ethics and morality. It is the study or the thought about what we ought to do, mm. what we, how we ought to act, right? Should we do this? Should we do that? Is it wrong to do this? Is it wrong to do that? And instead of making a decision about what's right and wrong based on all these external factors about like money, economics politics like what's best for me what's best for society instead of that what we start with Mm -hmm. or like some circumstance or my intention like well i intend to do good with it well it doesn't matter what are we going to start with we're going to start with the other person Mm -hmm. so the other person in the encounter the situation Mm -hmm. what's best for them right and this this found its way into gaudium what were you going to say?
1: Oh, no, go ahead. You're
0: good. Well, I was just going to say it found its way in one of my favorite quotes from Gaudia Spez, and you know it's from John Paul because I love him responsibility, is mm-hmm. man only truly finds himself with a sincere gift of himself. Mm-hmm. So like you only really know who you are because that's really what you want to know. How many How many people are like, I'm going, I'm quitting my job, and I'm going to find myself? <laughs> and you're like, okay, well, if you want to find yourself, just go go like live with some missionaries of charity, like go to Calcutta, you know, or Calcutta, wherever you are. Right. Yeah. Like find find a place
1: where you can serve. Right. Yeah. That's why, I mean, that's why we have service hours in school. Like it's not just to like make people check boxes, but it's to kind of throw you into an opportunity where you get to see people serving and understand what it's like to make a gift of yourself, you know? And like, even if it's kind of like feels forced in the moment, like, when you get there, a lot of times people have experiences where they're like, wow, yeah, like that was cool. Like I actually
0: And you become felt more something. of who you were made yeah. to be. And, <laughs> yeah. And here's the and here's and here's the deal. So that so that philosophy then applied to his book, Love and Responsibility, which is the foundation of theology of the body, is that love brings with it a responsibility to the other person. Love is more than just an emotion. It's more than just a feeling, right? It's more than just what I can get from me, which is a lot of times how the world sees love or not. They might not say it, but that's how they live it out is what they, they act like. It is, which is, if it, it's something for me to get something for me, whether that's sexual pleasure or emotional pleasure or prestige or whatever, instead, with it comes responsibility to other people. And so like family, wives, spouses, kids, um, your neighbor. <laughs> um, so it, it's, it's more than just, than just a feeling.
1: Right. Yeah. So, I mean, this is this also became uh, love and responsibility also became a major source of Paul the Sixth writing Humanae Vitae after the Council, um, which we talked about before. Is the kind of famous for um, denying uh, the use of contraception, um, but that the reasons why like are rooted in John Paul's theology of the body, right, and and rooted in that particularly love and responsibility. All right. So um at forty three years old the archbishop of krakow um he was he was ordained the archbishop of Krakow so he was uh elevated to archbishop um in just dealing with the communist regime in general, he was known as being tough, but flexible. Um, I think they did a really good job of portraying that in the movie. Uh, Patient, clever. Um, He still stood very strongly, demanded uh, the right to construct churches and to organize, um, because what they were trying to do is to create this communist state, which was atheistic in nature, right? So there were new cities that they were creating, like Novuhuta, you saw in the movie, where He was like, there's no church in Huta. This is the new city, right? Like, this is the thing, you know, without the churches. Like, we don't need the churches. But the people of Huta wanted a church. (laughs) So, because the Poles were Catholic, right? And they had that to their core. Poland had been a a Catholic nation for over a thousand years at that point. Um, And so, it was just a part of who they were. So, it was really oppressing them more than anything. So, he demanded that. Hmm?
0: Kids, I just want you to think about what the world would be like without the church. There's no Christmas. There's no Mardi Gras. There's no St. Patrick's Day. There's no Sunday. In fact, there's no Sunday fun day. (laughs) You just work every day. (laughs) Your communistic lords would just tell you that you don't get a break because this is about what you can give us, not about you Mm -hmm. worshiping anything else beyond us. The government becomes Mm -hmm. the, the, the God, right? And so...
1: And this oh, go it's ahead. so
0: boring. It's so boring kids. It's so <laughs> it's true. freaking boring. Okay,
1: There's <laughs> that, that. This can happen though. Um, on the flip side too. Right. So like in a communist state, you have, you can have that, but it can also happen when we become slaves uh, rather than slaves to the state, we can become slaves to ourselves, right? So on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have that sort of rampant individualism that we see a lot in our country where um, you know, we have a more capitalist economy and it's a more of a free market, but we tend to be consumers that just want to get the new and greatest and best thing. And I just need to consume and consume and consume and just get, get, get. And it's all about what I can do for myself and how much money I can make. And that can also become a God, right? A false God that can become mm-hmm. something that takes over our lives and destroys our relationships you know if i'm more uh concerned with climbing up at the ladder of success so to speak um then that can destroy my family right and maybe some of you have experienced that in your own families um but yeah it's uh there we always kind of have to be on our guard uh to drift over to one side or the other too individualistic or too um kind of anonymous and like just the the state or the group or whatever like we have to be looking for both. Um, what is the common good, but also like what is the good for each and every individual person that um, we are individuals, but we're made to be communal, right? Um, and so if this, the whole society suffers, then we're going to suffer. But also if certain members of society suffer, um, then it's going to affect the rest of society as well. So um, so yeah, so John Paul was trying to to really keep that in mind whenever he was kind of standing up for these things in Poland. Um, the other thing he did, uh, just to mention, they, they mentioned in the movie and the textbook, um, that he ordained priests secretly from Czechoslovakia, um, which was still going through kind of a worse communist regime. Um, and they snuck across the border and he ordained them and then sent them back to their people. A lot of them were probably martyred, um, but, uh, but yeah, so that was, that was kind of a cool thing that he did as archbishop as well. All right. So when he finally became Pope, um, he had just like an incredible papacy and it's going to have lasting impacts like into the future. Um, we were only, I think, just starting to begin to see the impact of his papacy, but, um, he was the most traveled pope in history he made 104 pastoral visits to 130 different countries um and then just within italy alone he made 146 visits um since he was the Bishop of Rome, he really wanted to go and visit all of the parishes of Rome. And there's 333 parishes in the Diocese of Rome. Um, And he visited almost every single one of them. And so that's pretty, pretty cool just to kind of show his pastor's heart that like, even as Pope, even as the leader of the universal church, um, he still does have a diocese. Right. And so he was, he was trying to kind of be present to his people there as well. Um, This is an interesting fact that the book mentions that, it's likely that no other person in history um, encountered more people face to face than John Paul II Um, because he traveled so much because he was actually physically present among the crowds. People actually saw his face. It wasn't just like through a screen Um, that he probably (laughs) had, um, more human contacts, like with people around the world than than any other person well, i mean in
0: what you're thinking is i mean you can limit it to the 20th century right and 21st century so if you take away everything else before that because anybody would have more chance to see be face to face with a bunch of people in the 20th mm-hmm. century because he flew to all these different places 105 right. different things whatever the kings of of europe and stuff the really influential wealthy ones they wouldn't be in the, the, the fray with everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like you weren't having all these audiences. In fact, mm-hmm. that was a big storyline in The Crown, but I won't get there. <laughs> yeah, um, you,
1: you wouldn't see people face-to-face as often, you know. And
0: so and so, the, so and he was – and so in other popes throughout history, one, didn't travel as much – and wouldn't see as many people face to face. So he he's he's like constantly having people walk up to him. He's like the anti-quarantine. He's the anti-social distancing. <laughs> yeah, he's when like you see him, the baby.
1: <laughs> when you see the crowds in St. Peter's Square every single Wednesday, right, for his audiences, you have people. He's driving around in the pope mobile after the audience. You know, and people are like reaching out, waving at him, seeing him, and he's blessing them and everything. Well, why you do know? you
0: need the why do you need so. the Popo- pope mobile?
1: Why do you need the pope mobile?
0: Well, it's a transition into what happened.
1: Oh, well, he was in the pope mobile when that happened.
0: Well, I mean, he was in a pope mobile, but it didn't have glass on it. Like now, some of the pope mobiles have, have like glass.
1: Yeah, actually, I feel like Francis at the beginning of his papacy said that he didn't. He like wanted the glass taken down, um, but that was just a very Francis esque thing to do <laughs> to not have the glass. Um, because I'm pretty sure when I saw I went to a Wednesday audience with Pope Francis right after he was elected in 2013 and uh he was like, you know, five feet from me um going by, but there wasn't glass on the Pope Mobile. So yeah, so whenever John Paul was uh actually when was that? The eighties? It was during the eighties. I don't remember what year. Um, but he was, after a Wednesday audience, he was traveling around St. Peter's Square in the Popemobile, um, and there was, uh, a would-be assassin that shot him two times, um, and so he was from a terrorist group, um, they caught him, and he was sent to jail, and one of the most, like, iconic photographs, I think, from John Paul's papacy is him sitting in the prison cell with the guy, um, uh, forgiving him, um, and so the guy was, the guy that shot him was very moved, by his reaching out um, and eventually I think he experienced some sort of conversion. Um, but he also was kind of like his mind wasn't <laughs> all there I think. Um, but he had this pretty profound encounter with John Paul and it was kind of amazing that he could go and literally just like sit in a chair next to this guy and like pray for him and forgive him to his face. You know um, he credited his, it really was a miraculous survival. It was like the bullets like, pathway through his i think it was like his stomach or his side um just like i mean millimeters missed his vital organs um that like he would have died if it had been like a couple of millimeters you know to the right or to the left um of where it hit him and he credited that to our lady of fatima um to whom he had a devotion so one of his mottos um of his papacy was totus tuus maria which means totally yours um he took mary sort of as his mother um, really focused on her spiritual motherhood in his life, particularly after his mom died when he was eight, um, just kind of held on to that throughout the rest of his life and had this deep devotion to Mary promoted the rosary. He was the one that gave us the luminous mysteries. So before when you would pray the rosary, it was just the joyful, glorious and sorrowful mysteries, but now we have the luminous mysteries as well. And that was credit to John Paul. Um, And it was her feast day, uh, our lady of Fatima, uh, whenever he was shot, And so he actually made a pilgrimage after he recovered, he made a pilgrimage to Fatima and took the bullet that was in his body, um, and placed it in her crown on the statue at Fatima. Um, And that's still there, I think, or it's at least somewhere, um, maybe even in the Vatican. But uh, it's pretty amazing story. I
0: mean, that's, that's a relic.
1: Yeah. Can you imagine?
0: Technically only a second class relic. Yeah,
1: this is inside (laughs) my body. Yeah.
0: It's only second class.
1: Yep.
0: Unless there was blood on it and then it's first class. True.
1: Um, All right. So while he was Pope, he wrote a ton. Um, He wrote 14 encyclicals, 15 apostolic exhortations, 11 apostolic constitutions, five books, including the bestseller Crossing the Threshold of Hope. Um, He beatified 1,300 plus men and women incredible number, um, canonized 482 new saints. Um, and then he created 232 cardinals. So some of those guys are still around today. Um, and then during his time, he called six plenary councils of cardinals and 15 synods of bishops, um, to discuss various matters and come up with, uh, declarations on some things. So yeah, just like he did a ton, um, obviously 27 years, a long time. Um, The book talked about just, and I think you can really see this in the movie, his personal sanctity. That like everybody who knew him knew that he wasn't just this great figure, um, you know, politically or as like a leader of an organization, but he was someone that was very deeply in love with Jesus Christ and he had this relationship that kind of permeated everything that he did. Um, and that was the, the inner strength that he had that like in the movie, there's times when they, especially the communists who are watching him, they mentioned like he has this inner strength that's scary and we don't know where it's coming from. Right. Like how does he continue to persevere through all of his hardship and be this like very, um, loving human being, right. Like after all that he suffered. Um, Mm -hmm. and that is, really only attributed to to grace, right? To that divine um, life that was very clearly in him um, through his relationship with God. There's numerous uh, examples of that, just lots of stories about just little things. Like people would say he was always sneaking off to the chapel as Pope and people would be like, he has an appointment, where is he? And he would be in the chapel in front of the Blessed Sacrament. And uh, there were times when they they even tried to hide uh, like He was in a new building that he had never been in before, and they were trying to hide the chapel from him. They, like, took the sign off the door of the chapel so that he wouldn't know that that's where the Blessed Sacrament was because he had, like, a lot to do and he needed to go to all these meetings. And <laughs> the apparently – there's
0: like, uh, take that <laughs> sign down because he'll go in there. And then we'll, get and we'll never get there.
1: him out, yeah. And so he he was, like, walking down the hallway, and he, like, passed the door, and then he stopped, and then he backtracked. And he like looked at the door and he pulled it and it was the chapel and he went in. And so just little things like that, where he was just very in tune to the presence of God. Um, he just really, really loved the Lord. Um, there's numerous pictures of him in prayer that are just like, even just seeing him at prayer was sort of moving um, for people. But uh, one of the things that he promoted is this sort of, uh, he coined the phrase, the new evangelization, um, which is not going out to the parts of the world that has never heard the gospel before. That's just regular evangelization, right? And we, the church exists to do that always in all places. Um, But he kind of coined this term, the new evangelization, to talk about um, representing the gospel to places that were once Christian and have sort of fallen out of their faith. So um, our country would be considered one of those places that the new evangelization could take place. that basically, there's a lot of people in America who like know who Jesus is in a certain sense. like they kind of they know the name Jesus, they know Christianity. It's very commonplace to people to know about Christianity where we live. Um, but yet there's a lot of people, who, uh, don't really practice the faith anymore. They've kind of fallen away from it, um, for various reasons. And they, they may kind of know who Jesus is on a surface level, but they don't like know Jesus, you know, like personally. Um, and so John Paul was, was encouraging people to go out not only to these nations who have never heard the gospel, but to these nations who think they have heard the gospel and really haven't. Mm. Um, mm. And so I think that um, that was a huge uh, contribution of his papacy and his writing to kind of talk about that and like, how do we do that? And also just using the the new methods of uh, communication in the world, the new media um, in order to evangelize. And so, you know, how are we reaching out to people, not just face-to-face, face-to-face is extremely important, but also, um, you know, through social media, through YouTube, through, you know, whatever else, um, news sources and Movies and shows and different ways we can communicate the gospel through art and just like all these different ways Um, So that was a huge part of his teaching Um, and then I mentioned before his love of the youth he created World Youth Day, um, which happens every couple years at a new place in the world and uh, There's been some of the largest gatherings of people in human history uh, at World Youth Day I think Manila in the Philippines
0: Manila was the biggest
1: yeah, Manila. So it was um, like millions, right?
0: There so was three million or something.
1: Yeah, like all gathered together in one field just to like go to mass uh, with the pope and kind of see him speak. And it's just amazing. There's a lot of really cool stories. I had you guys watch a video from Stefanic um where he talked about his own experience at the World Youth Day in Denver in 1993. Um, there's a lot of people around um, that are. I guess, Gen Xers that were youth whenever they, that happens. And they went to that in our own country, which is pretty cool. And Denver really young
0: for that.
1: Yeah. Denver, I was three in 1993. So, uh, but Denver became sort of this hotbed of new evangelization efforts in our own country. I don't know if you guys know this, but there's a ton of uh, really large Catholic organizations that are founded in Denver and like are headquartered in Denver. One of which is focus um, the, Fellowship of Catholic University students, which is a very John Paul-esque thing, we I
0: have think. that at LSU. Mm-hmm. And also, John Paul likes skiing, so it's probably yeah. like, you no, know what? <laughs> in the mountains.
1: Ever. Yeah. In fact, I think he was the one that, that mentioned it, that wanted it there. And everybody was like, why are you going to go to Denver? That's such a random place in the United States. Well, like, And they
0: they actually, yeah. no, this is, this is real. At the time, and still right now, I mean, Colorado, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of the... It's not much history, right? So mm-hmm. it's not much Catholic history. Right. Like you think in New Orleans, you're thinking uh, like LA, in the Floridas, or like, in LA or, yeah. or, or Texas, maybe one of those cities that has mm-hmm. like a lot of Hispanics. It's already this founded Catholic culture. Mm-hmm. Denver was like hipster central. <laughs> Everyone not told yet, them, almost. <laughs> no, there just wasn't no, a lot like, there. People, yeah. There wasn't a lot there, but people yeah. told them like you're it's not going to be good like there's mm-hmm. not going to be a lot of people that come because it's just not a very catholic area mm-hmm. he's like watch me
1: <laughs> yeah and so then millions of people show up you know and it's like it's this huge event um in the history of
0: we, we love, love
1: you, you. <laughs> that's what everybody chanted chanted at the world youth day so um all,
0: all the all the little like high schoolers like
1: oh like that whole rock star thing (laughs) yeah so it's just funny like if you if you talk to a lot of priests today who are like you know in their 40s or whatever like a lot of them were there and like that impacted their own priesthood and like or their own discernment of the priesthood and um, a lot of people found their vocations and like really kind of had conversions and came to the faith, it just became faithful lay people. And, you know, whatever else, like just because of the impact of seeing like a tiny little dot of a person, like, you know, hundreds of yards away, like on this stage, you know, and people just uh, for some reason are totally, and not just some reason, I mean, the reason is his holiness, right? That people were attracted to Jesus. He was really showing himself through John Paul. So um a lot of people talked to him as a, or talked about him as if he was a mystic, um that he would just have this like deep spiritual connection with the Lord um, through his prayer and through his perseverance um and then again, like his you know just his death, the way that he suffered in the end for the last several years of his papacy, um just like calmly quietly offering up his his suffering for the world um, for conversion, and just like showing people that. Uh, the elderly are not to be discarded, right? But that they have something to teach us, even in their mm-hmm. suffering. Um, they have something to contribute to society. Not that that is, you know, we're not defined by like what we contribute, right? Uh, but it's something that I think we oftentimes overlook, you know, that somebody can teach us great lessons through their wisdom and through their suf- even their suffering, their physical suffering, just like how they stay close to the Lord in those times. And be uh inspiration to us, you know, just like in our daily lives. So, yeah. Mm. I don't know. If there's anything else. Uh, there's so many other things we could talk about. He was really supportive of uh, the vocation of the laity, uh, especially after the council, mm-hmm. there was a lot of emphasis on like how to, how are lay people called to serve in the church um that he mm-hmm. was really supportive of various lay organizations um He was uh, really sensitive to women's issues. Um, He wrote a really awesome encyclical that uh, girls y'all should look up called Mulieris Dignitatum on the Dignity and Vocation of Women, um, which is really cool. Uh, Just something that not a lot of people had really been talking about in the church before him. Um, Not that it wasn't important, but he kind of um, was able to give a new perspective, I guess, and kind of, I don't know if I would really even call it new, but he would kind of draw out things in a new way um, that was really... Supportive and and cool, I guess, um, for us as women. So that was a cool thing about his papacy as well. And again, I think that had a lot to do with his reflections and his counseling of of people in relationships and um, just like his close proximity to marriages and family and um, to women in in the workforce and you know all of that. Like he was just a real great uh, advocate and supporter. Um, so, anyways,
0: well. I think my parting words will be like, I think what he did was he changed the face of orthodoxy because he brought dynamism. So, mm-hmm. what do I mean by orthodoxy? I mean like right belief. Like he stood by the, the church's foundational teaching. yeah, the church's mm-hmm. teachings about what it means to be moral, what it means mm-hmm. to be a Christian, what ought we believe. These things that can kind of seem stuffy to the outside world. They'd be like, oh, you're behind the times, you're not very cool, and you're kind of boring if you believe and profess and follow the church's teachings. And Jesus wasn't like that. He wasn't Mm -hmm. stuffy or boring. Um, And John Paul II wasn't. He was like, hey, you can be engaging and very relevant Mm -hmm. to the world. He was like, think about how relevant he was. A third of the entire world thought it was important for them to watch his funeral.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Bono yeah. thought he was the coolest. Bono <laughs> yeah. doesn't, a lot of people, are the coolest. Y'all
1: Google Bono and John Paul II and look for some pictures.
0: <laughs> there's a, Well, there's a great story where John Paul, mm-hmm. it was right after he died and he was at a concert. Uh, Bono was doing a concert and he dedicated a song to John Paul. And he was like, he told the story about being in an audience where like, John Paul was like, I like your sunglasses and, and Bono gives him the sunglasses. There's a
1: picture like, of it. Yeah.
0: And he puts, he puts Bono's <laughs> sunglasses on it. Bono was like, he didn't know how to express it. He really didn't. He was like, there's yeah. just something about him, you know? Yeah. And, and and John Paul probably believed and professed mm-hmm. and represented a lot of things that Bono doesn't like. Yeah. Right? Bono's the most conservative, like orthodox Catholic person, he is Catholic, but like he probably rejects some a lot of church teaching. But mm. the way John Paul II loved people and expressed the truth and expressed the faith, it didn't matter to these people. He met yeah. them where they were at, and that's where you gotta you gotta uh, get. Like you, we we need you, high schoolers, to go into your stories, into your chat rooms, into your chat, chat rooms. rooms. How old are you? Onto your Facebook <laughs> wall. Into your aim groups.
1: Was <laughs> <What's> that MySpace? <laughs>
0: Go on your MySpace and make Jesus your top eight.
1: Oh my gosh. Y'all don't even know what that means. <laughs> oh man. We're old, Father Brad.
0: <laughs> That's what I gotta say.
1: Cool. I think um for me, I think just his his impact. Um in spreading the church's teaching again in this kind of holistic and consistent way, the fact that um, you cannot put this man in a box when it comes to like, you know, conservative versus liberal or like in America, like Republican versus Democrat or whatever, like he does not fit into any of these categories, right? Because there's, because Catholic teaching doesn't fit into any of these categories. There's, um, you know, care for the human person, no matter what, no matter where, Um, And so that means, you know, the elderly, that means the unborn, that means um, the poor, that means uh, immigrants, that means, you know, it's just like everybody, it's like, no matter who you are, like, the Lord loves you, and therefore we should love you. Right. And so uh, I think that he's just really cool, because, you know, you have people from all sides of the spectrum thinking that he's amazing. You also have people from all sides of the spectrum thinking that he's not cool, right? And all of it is is sort of a, a caricature of like who he really is. And so I just mm-hmm. think it's cool that you can't put him in a box, um, and that the reason you can't put him in a box is because he really fully embodied um, Catholic teaching. Um, and so you just you don't see that unfortunately a lot. So. We got to be that, you know? True. That's all I got. John Paul Bray for us.